You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. My guest today, Tina Grande, is the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Healthcare Leadership Council. In this role, she helps to advocate for consumer-centered healthcare reform, emphasizing the value of private sector innovation as well as public-private partnership. Tina has healthcare and policy in her blood. Her father represented the Mayo Clinic on Capitol Hill, and she began her career as a junior staffer in healthcare policy for Senator David Durenberger. Tina also spent time in health IT, first working for what at the time was an avant-garde software company that was moving paper healthcare charts to TV monitors at the point of care. And then she became an entrepreneur, creating software that organized 44,000 pages of Medicare policy into a consumable format for policymakers and providers alike. In 2007, Tina put policy, healthcare, and technology all together and began her tenure at the Healthcare Leadership Council. I'm so excited to talk with Tina and dig deeper into her remarkable career at the intersection of healthcare, technology, and national policy. We'll garner her thoughts on the mission and successes of the council, learn what inspires her, and hear what she thinks policy makers and healthcare leaders should keep front and center in months and years ahead. Well, hi, Tina. It's so great to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's great to be here. I know that you've had such an amazing career in healthcare policy, and we're going to talk all about that. But let's just start. I really like to start with where did you get started? Well, I think it all goes back to where I was raised. My family moved to Rochester, Minnesota when I was a young kid, and I was raised in the combination of, I would say, a, a somewhat political household that also revolved heavily around healthcare because my dad was with the Mayo Clinic. It was very natural for me, I think, to feel comfortable in the field of healthcare and um, went to college and had an internship my junior year of college in the United States Senate, and it sort of grew from there. So I think it actually stems from the very beginning for me. I think you've talked with me before about this job that you got right after college, that when you talk about it with me, it's like the epitome of healthcare before electronic healthcare. And that probably inspired some, dis- some of your work with, uh, within policy as well. You want to talk about that? I think you called it mm, a boring job, maybe, right after college. <laughs> yes. I think I know which job you're talking about. I had it for one year and it was one of those, it was a job that I took in my hometown in Rochester only because I was waiting for my boyfriend at the time to finish college. We went to college together. He is now my husband of almost 30 years, but I had sort of this waiting period. And so I took this job at this little company. I was doing filing work and, you know, phone answering type stuff. But it was this company that at the time was very avant-garde. They were taking paper medical records and 
somehow miraculously putting them on a TV screen for the hospital room so that the doctor didn't have to necessarily pick up a clipboard if he couldn't or she couldn't. It was revolutionary at the time. (laughs) Little did I know. I mean, I had no idea. It's the early, early, early version of electronic health records, right? Not not a computer at the bedside, but but a TV that they took advantage of. It's so exactly. interesting because now you're really focused on, amongst other things, interoperability and the whole bringing, yes. right? Yeah. And then the other thing that you've talked about, you know, at ShareScripts, we're all about simplification, simplifying processes in healthcare. And I know that you might be one of, very few number of people who have read 44,000 pages of Medicare policy. And that tipped off a new venture into healthcare technology too, right? Even before the policy. So you want to talk about that? So what it is, is it refers to pages of Medicare regulations in these manuals that we had to use when I worked in the Senate called the CCH manuals. And it was for lawyers and policy people who had to look up very specific pieces of the Medicare regulation. And I just remember as a young person, these books made no sense to me. They didn't have normal page numbers. They didn't have normal references. It was seemed all very mysterious and very complicated. In my work in Washington, did a lot of work on the complexity of the Medicare regulations. There are so many of them. It is a lot to digest for a health system, a long-term care facility, whatever it might be, to stay in compliance. So I had this idea after I moved to San Francisco with my husband for his education to start a company to take the 44,000 pages of CCH manual regulations and just upload them into a software product. You know, what we did that was unique was not only did we, you know, pull all of that information into the software, but then we, we hired people in DC who were policy people to take that arcane legal and regulatory language and put it into layman's language so that a nurse could understand it who might not have a law background or someone on the front lines who maybe needed to know some of this information or had some responsibility to make sure people were doing things correctly. And then we had the layman's language come up on the screen with a little with a little pop-up that if you wanted to look at the technical language, you would click right there and the technical language would open up. You know, as you get into, as we get into where you are now with the Healthcare Leadership Council and the policy work that you all are doing, those early experiences are just important to call, because I know you call on them. And now at the Healthcare Leadership Council, you work with a lot of companies who have taken small, big, medium ideas and turned them into entire businesses. Now you're trying to pull them together, right? So talk about the Healthcare Leadership Council. What is it and um, what's your role? So HLC, as we call ourselves by the acronym, is a trade association. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we represent all of the different subsectors in the healthcare industry, which, you know, is a big industry in the United States, and it has a lot of um, pieces and parts. There are hospitals and health systems. There are health plans. There are pharmaceutical manufacturers. There are medical device companies. There are health information technology companies and data analytics companies distributors, group purchasers, that there's just, it is such a complex piece of American economics. And we, we try to take all of those different sectors in the healthcare economy 
and focus on healthcare policy at a high level where all of those different pieces of the healthcare industry can agree on certain um, elements of where we should be moving in the future as it relates to healthcare policy. We focus on innovation, making sure that we continue to promote an environment that allows innovative ideas to flourish and succeed. We focus on affordability of healthcare and access to healthcare, make sure that people in the United States have access to really good, high quality, safe care. These are all tenants that all of these pieces of the healthcare industry at large care about. It's core to something that we do as ShareScripts, convene different parts of the marketplace around right technology things that can be made better by exchanging information. So it's all this convening that is so important to making healthcare work better. You know, yeah, because making policy in Washington, you need a lot of friends, so to speak. And I don't mean you need them on Capitol Hill, but you really you don't want to surprise people in in the market. You want to socialize ideas for the most part and get as many people behind an idea to make it happen. Right. And as you do that, I know that you've been regularly tapped by and HLC has been regularly tapped by members of the Hill presidential administrations, et cetera, to get input from the council. Can you talk about a few of the stories? I'm going to talk about one that's happening right this minute that is exciting. And it's an issue I personally have a lot of interest in, and that's healthcare privacy. There is a bill moving through the House of Representatives right now in the Energy and Commerce Committee, and it relates to uh, protecting our information generally, particularly as it relates to technology. Healthcare, which has been doing electronic exchange of information for quite a while, gets sucked into a lot of these bills. And so my job is to make sure that when it comes to privacy policy, that we make sure that health information is protected, that we will be able to maintain trust in our healthcare providers because we have the understanding that our information is respected and protected and that the current privacy framework, HIPAA, which does protect a good portion of our identifiable information, remains intact so that healthcare providers, doctors, pharmacists, health plans, et cetera, can continue to do the good work they do. It's it's an important piece of legislation. Whether it ultimately becomes law is very uncertain at this point, but we go in as HLC through our Confidentiality Coalition, which is a privacy and security coalition of organizations that we run to make sure that things um, work out for the benefit of patients and healthcare consumers in this privacy bill. Right. That's that's really great that we'll be watching that one carefully. Another one I know you've been really involved in is interoperability, right? Yep. So can you share a little bit about that work? Well, that's really fun stuff. Our interoperability work, uh, what I like about that is it's a real mix of good policy, good research. There's a congressional element at play if it's needed. And then it's good marketplace um, research as well. It's a really fun project. Um, what we're working on right now, and SureScripts has been such a champion of this effort, and we are so thankful for the support of SureScripts with this was that we wanted to show, yes, information is being exchanged and we need the evidence, the data 
to show that it's being exchanged. And so uh, with the help of SureScripts, uh, we decided that let's do a measurement project where we create a report, we interview members of the HLC, many of whom have a lot of health information um, that they hold and that they share in exchange for purposes within you know, the healthcare system. And let's interview them and let's write a report, uh, which we have done and we've completed the first version of it to measure our success. And at the same time, when we're measuring our success through the evidence that we've gathered, we also will automatically identify gaps where more work needs to be done. So we've been working with the University of San Francisco, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, to interview our members, get the data that they would like us to share with policymakers and others who are interested um, to really show where we're succeeding in the private sector. And it's pretty, pretty interesting and amazing. I think some of the areas that are new and interesting to the government include how are our organizations in the healthcare industry sharing information directly with consumers that is one area that hasn't been studied a lot. And so we're working hard on our measurement efforts to, to determine that. How many of our, not how many of our members, but what kind of information and to what extent within our membership can we determine whether people are getting their information from their doctors, from their health plans, through an app, through a third-party app, for example. There's not a lot of information there. And so we're hoping to... Um, continue to generate the data and the evidence to show where we are in that process. It will help with policymaking. And I think it helps also make the case that the private sector is um, a good partner with the government in pulling together information that then leads to good policymaking that's really based on a public-private partnership, which is the best way to do it. Just to just for our listeners, a few examples. I mean, I guess I've, I go back to when I moved to Washington, D.C. from Boston. It was five or six years ago. And at the time, I pretty much knew my medical records were probably not going to come with me. So I went around and I'd lived in Boston for most of my adult life. So I went around and collected my paper, my paper medical records and came with my whole stack of paper medical records. My doctors were impressed. I think they were impressed and depressed because they realized that they had to do something with these and they had to somehow get them into their records, right? During this five years, I have had seen some success with my record being shared across, you know, across EHRs, which is very good. Then I had a, a friend who just moved from, this is in the last week, from California to DC, who was told by their new their new providers, no, 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 you need to go get the paper records. So I was like, wow, we've got so much work to do still. It's like three steps forward, two steps back. The one place I would say that is that is I like as a consumer is the app. I do like the app, the that right. And and the idea that now I know that doctors don't necessarily love that we get the alert when the lab is in before they even get a chance to look at the lab, but I love it because I'm sitting there waiting, right? So, you know, I get my email and I see my lab. That's great. Yep, me too. I love it. I love it too, Melanie. And the other area that I think it's really wonderful is for my mom, who's going to be 92. And I love the fact that Medicare has this blue button program that allows for Medicare beneficiaries, um, their information to be uploaded into apps. And for my mom, the idea of having all of her prescriptions in an app that I can just click on 
Not that we've done this as a family yet, but I know it's there. I know people who have done it. I just need to get busy and do it for my mom. You know, you can show it to any provider. Here's all her list of meds and everything. It's great. And there's been a lot of work happening in medication history being shared across across the ecosystem. So that, to your point, that's the work that HLC is doing to, to help make sure that we can track the work that is happening is important. The other piece of this is that as consumers, we may not even notice that it's just happened. Until you step back and you think about it, and when was the last time somebody asked you to bring your entire list of medications with you. They don't do it as much anymore. That's because they have it. That's right. That's so true. And the other piece that comes to mind for me is for policymakers sitting, you know, in their buildings in Washington or wherever they are, they know that information is being exchanged out there. They just don't have the data and the evidence about exactly how and with whom and how many and all of that. They know it's happening. It's happening every day. And it works better in some cases than others. But is anyone really gathering that information? I think in some cases, yes, for Medicare reporting purposes. But that's that's a very segmented piece of the market. There's all this other, you know, information being exchanged in healthcare that doesn't fit into those reporting programs. So it's not necessarily being um, tracked and, you know, collected in a standardized way. Um, so that we really know what's going on. And that's what we're trying to do at HLC with our measurement work. So let's move to the pandemic because the pandemic has probably forced a lot of change in some of the work that you do, not only in how you do it, where you do it from and that kind of thing, but also just the focus that Capitol Hill may have on certain topics in healthcare. Yeah. Oh my God. There are so many. I mean, the pandemic highlighted so many areas within the healthcare system at large that need critical improvement. It just it just magnified what was already a problem to a degree that you could could no longer ignore it. I think, um, well, one if since we're on the topic of data, one really relates to modernizing our public health agencies, health IT systems, and making sure that those systems are brought up to the level of modernization as the private sector, because what we found during the COVID, especially the early days of the COVID public health emergency, was that hospitals and public health departments needed to exchange information very rapidly. They were not able to access each other's information in an electronic way because the private sector was operating on a modern data standard, whereas the public health agencies were operating on an antiquated standard. And then the systems couldn't talk to each other. They didn't understand each other. It slowed down communications so much at a time when we needed such rapid exchange of information. Right. We had an experience with that at SureScripts because we had a provider in California who worked on this and actually used our clinical direct messaging service to work with public health and automate the um, the alert of, and the reporting of COVID cases to public health. It was taking a technology that existed and working with public health to figure out how can we use this to get it through to public health instead of manually, because they were manually reporting, right, COVID cases. You can't do it at that volume and, and see the trends that were so emergent to you know, to see. You needed it in real time. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of, you know, just being innovative in a situation that you didn't have time to wait. Another, I think, pandemic-related policy issue that really came to light during the pandemic are the workforce challenges and the lack of, um, you know, the ability of many healthcare providers not to be able to move to another state even temporarily to help provide healthcare when it's needed. You know, providers were exhausted. They were so burned out. It was, they were getting sick. Their families were getting sick. And there was such a desperate need for doctors and nurses and others to step in from other locations to help. And the fact that licensing laws didn't allow it in many cases was a real tragedy for patients, for families, for healthcare providers themselves, for the systems and organizations that hire those people. That was really brought into, I think, stark daylight during the pandemic. And I know that um, this is a thorny issue that the state's um, you know, tend to control and the federal government oftentimes feels they don't have the ability to do much about it because of state authority. Um, but that's an issue that needs to get worked out. I, whether it's at, you know, the collective state level or at the federal level at, in some way, shape or form. The other the bright light was that pharmacists were seeing, right, seeing an expansion of their their use and their opportunity just between providing vaccines and you know, COVID tests, and they were really a source of care in some cases in communities that didn't have access. That's right. I think I think a lot of the waivers that were put in place during the public health emergency um, to allow, you know, people to practice to the top of their license and to do things that, you know, the community needs to be done. And for example, another one that comes to mind that we've worked on a lot at HLC is telehealth. You know, oh my God, was that important during the pandemic? And it, it, you know, there's still, though, no guarantee that um, Medicare is going to cover it once the public health emergency is done in, in, in a broad fashion, I would say, because we um, are trying to, with, with, with data, um, show the government, the scorekeepers who focus on the dollars, that telehealth um, doesn't necessarily increase healthcare costs overall that it's not additive to the system. And so until we can prove that, though, to what's called the Congressional Budget Office, it's going to be an uphill battle. Sure. Well, I can anecdotally think of why it would be less expensive just from your own experience. You don't have any of the tests and all of that, and it's certainly much more accessible. But I can see why that needs, yeah, that needs to be done and hopefully will be done. What about health equity? Yes, this, this is an issue that I think was a... Um, I would say, you know, it had its track in Washington in a certain, you know, certain constituency. You always have had your minority health advocates and, and folks like that in D.C. But when COVID hit and we saw how disproportionately it negatively affected people of color and people in the lower socioeconomic scales of society, health equity became an overarching policy issue for every organization that I work with. So there's been now a huge focus on making sure that we have fairness and equity in the healthcare delivery and healthcare coverage system. We're seeing a lot of bills being introduced around making sure that we've got diversity in clinical trials. We've got the federal government. I think every single branch of HHS that I work with has equity front and center. Oh, well, that's great to hear. So, I mean, we've talked about, there are plenty more, but we've talked about just from the pandemic, highlighting huge issues around public health, 
health equity, workforce challenges, pharmacists and the role of the pharmacist, telehealth. I mean, how do we make sure and how, is this something that HLC is involved in that these don't fade from the from the conversation, right? That, that we use these to learn from and to improve. We um, actually did uh, research in this area. We convened a couple hundred organizations a few years ago. Um, and in fact, we had been doing work on disaster readiness even before the pandemic hit us. And um, it actually ironically was paused for a while in the early stages of the pandemic because our member organizations were so focused on you know the here and now. But we picked it back up and we produced a report. We did it with Duke Margolis, um, their health policy center. And we came up with a list of recommendations for not only the government, but also the private sector, some commitments that um, private sector organizations made to be better ready next time. And it fell into three kind of bucket or buckets or areas. We've got the care delivery system. We've got data and evidence generation. And then we have the supply chain. Those three areas really we honed in on as, um, you know, there are concrete things we can do in each of those buckets to make sure that we are ready for the next, if it's a pandemic, if it's whatever it may be, God forbid, that we're better ready next time. That's really good news. On a personal level, what did the pandemic teach you as a leader? I think what it taught me as a leader is that you can be effective whether you are in the office or at home, as long as you communicate with your team and can talk to your team, you can still be effective. I think also just personally, when I think about the pandemic, I really having children and having an elementary school child during the pandemic, it taught me how important day-to-day interaction with friends and teachers are. And a 10-year-old spending a year on an iPad and seeing almost no one, you know, other than your immediate family, took a huge toll. And, you know, also the resiliency of children. Now that they're back in school, the resiliency is phenomenal, but it really took a toll, I think, mentally. Absolutely. I, um, I totally respect you and all who had school-aged children of any age at home during the pandemic I, or, or even younger. I can't even, I can't even imagine. So let me turn to another topic. I am fascinated by how people get inspired. Like what inspires you and makes you get up in the morning every day? Oh, I can tell you one thing that really inspires me and it's music. I don't know what music does to me, but it, it, it changes me. It's such Music is a huge inspiration for me. Then when I think about what gets me up in the morning, honestly, you know what gets me up in the morning? Um, You know, it's just being thankful that I have the day, you know, that I actually am waking up and I'm healthy and my kids are healthy, you know, and I, I just try. I don't do it every morning, but when I wake up, I try to say thank you. And it puts me in a positive frame of mind, to then face the day. Because sometimes, some days are harder to face than others. I love it. I love it. So on the other side, as a healthcare leader, what keeps you up at night? You know, I have to say these privacy issues really matter to me. I, I think that there's, you know, a deeper, deeper subterranean ripple going on. And that, that 
issue does keep me up. Not just, you know, it's it's in part for my children's sake, but, you know, just for how we, the shape of our society and trust. I feel like we're in a weird place right now in society where I think the politics, and I do think, you know, privacy issues, there's a lot of distrust out there right now. And I guess for me in healthcare, I don't want to see people lose trust in their providers. I don't want to see them lose trust in a system that's meant to keep them healthy and safe and well. And I really think that trust issues for me are big right now. So what's on the horizon for you and HLC? Well, I think our continued work on readiness and response is huge. I think we have a moral obligation to keep pushing on that issue. It is something that I think you could easily put on the back burner because things are good again. And so I'm looking forward to continuing to do our work in that space. I get really excited on the information exchange, the data analytics, you know, the interoperability, the health IT part of what we do is very inspiring for me because our system right now, it, it wouldn't operate the way it should if we didn't have the data being exchanged responsibly as, as, it, as it is. Well, Tina, it's been great talking with you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Melanie. Thank you for the invitation. It's just such a pleasure to work with Sure Scripts. I've just, oh, have I ever valued our relationship together over the years? And thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much, Tina, for spending time with us and sharing your experiences as a national leader in healthcare technology and policy. I'm so energized by your perspective on and passion for convening private and public sectors to help push for the right kind of healthcare innovation at the right time and on a national scale. I look forward to our continued partnership, especially as the Healthcare Leadership Council informs and influences the policy and technology debates over patient privacy, measuring interoperability, preparing for the next pandemic, and addressing the mental health and equity issues the pandemic laid bare. Thank you for your leadership in taking on these complex and critical challenges. You show us that there is indeed a better way when we work together. For those of you listening in, we hope you'll join us again Upcoming episodes will focus on making interoperability work for patients and clinicians, equity and access, and what's next in the specialty space, a huge market that's ripe for innovation. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.